welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we continue our partnership with the Whitechapel Society 1888 in releasing the guest speaker talks from their bi-monthly meetings, conferences and special events. What you are about to hear in the order of their appearance are the talks from the Whitechapel Society's Victims Conference, which took place on the 8th of September 2018 at Hanbury Hall, Hanbury Street in London's East End. So without further ado, let's turn it over to the events MC, Philip Hutchinson, as he introduces the third speaker, Joyce Hampton, the Huguenots from Victims to Saviours. Joyce Hampton was born and raised in London before moving to Surrey, where she lives with her husband, John, and their two dogs. Her lifelong passion has been history. Uh, She began writing seriously six years ago. Her first book, A Walk Through 100 Years of Life in East London, was published in 2014. Her latest book, Astorio, Astorio of the Huguenots, a unique legacy, only published this summer, is a non-fiction history book, but with a difference as it examines the lives of French Protestants, historically victims of persecution, and brings to life some of their personal stories of harassment and oppression. He details their flight to begin again would be on the borders of the homeland, with many travelling far and wide to seek a new life of freedom, a situation we would see again in the area, especially in regards to the Jews' escape in the pogroms shortly before the Whitechapel murders. Yet, as is often the case, the harsh treatment forged many of them into stronger charitable characters who passed on these traits to later generations. Many of us have only viewed the Huguenots as victims of a religious intolerance at the turn of the 18th century, yet it was their uh, descendants who, at the time of the French Revolution, showed benevolence to Catholics fleeing to England from the terror raging in France. A century before, they had suffered under Catholicism, yet now they were offering aid to this fresh wave of victims seeking shelter on these shores. During World War II, the Huguenots, who had remained in France, demonstrated their own considerable courage and compassion to Jews suffering victimization in Vichy, France, becoming saviors to many hundreds of Jewish men, women, and particularly children, uh, without thought to their own family's safety. We clearly have more to appreciate these people for than their rare silk and some nice houses with big windows in Wilt Street. So to enlighten us on a group of people whose architectural legacy is everywhere in Spitalfields, but whom we otherwise overlook, please welcome Joyce Hampton. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Appropriately to today's venue, Hanbury Hall, was once a Huguenot chapel, and the area surrounding Hanbury Hall has many clues to its Huguenot past. Calvin Street, Fleur de Lis Street. If you go into Christchurch itself, you'll find a number of memorials to French Huguenots. The Huguenots is the name that was given to French Protestants, not only victims, but later saviors of other desperate victims of persecution. And I'm going to speak today about how they can be classed as both victims and saviours. Down the century, this country has given shelter to many, many different groups of people for a number of different numbers of reasons, but none have deserved the epithet more than the Huguenots for being the most successful group of refugees this country ever took in. Indeed, the word refugee is actually a French word. 
Europe in the 13th century began to experience a serious questioning of the church's official doctrine. Before then, there had, of course, been clashes with the church authorities, but the voices raised were soon silenced. Life in medieval Europe was very, very different to today. Our own modern world, and in many cases secular lives, are far removed from the mainstay of daily life in past centuries, which was, of course, religion. Can you imagine a time when lives were governed by faith and how following those beliefs, for the good of your soul, was the most important consideration in your life. The Catholic Church for many centuries held sway over the lives and souls of those of the known world. But gradually, a questioning of the Catholic dogma led for some to a new religion, a new way, Protestantism. In France, this had been implemented by John Calvin, and this form of worship had become popular and taken hold across many parts of France. But not everyone approved of this alternative form of worship, which ultimately led to the French wars of religion. The first of these wars had begun in Vassy, a small town in northeastern France. What had started as a minor heckle between the Catholic entourage of the visiting Duc de Guise and local Huguenots had rapidly turned into a full-scale massacre when Catholic soldiers fired shots at unarmed Huguenot worshippers attending a service in a barn. Many innocents were killed before the barn was finally set alight, and yes, there were still people inside. Within a few weeks, war clouds had gathered, and the opening shots of the religious wars that were to plague France for decades were fired. Numerous peace treaties were to follow, but each time the peace was short-lived and hostilities would once again erupt. With each resumption of war, so fresh atrocities were inflicted, and it has to be said, both sides participated in this. But by 1572, a fresh approach was suggested in the form of a marriage alliance, not only between two people, but hopefully between two religions. And so the king's sister, Marguerite of Valois, and the Huguenot leader, Henri of Navarre, was, was planned. It was presumed that such a marriage would pacify both sides of the religious divide. The marriage was set take, to take place in August, and guests duly began to arrive to witness the union and to join in the festivities which were to last several days. However, the mood in Paris changed to one of anger when a gun was fired at one of the prominent Huguenot leaders, Coligny. 
In spite of serious gunshot wounds, he survived the attempt on his life. But the Huguenots were enraged and insisted that the king brought the perpetrators to justice, or they threatened to riot if their plea was ignored. Tempers were seriously frayed that hot summer. The king, his mother, Catherine de' Medici, and her younger son, Henri Duc d'Anjou, were among those present at a hastily called meeting of the king's council to discuss the highly charged situation. For hours and hours, the arguments for and against raged back and forth until Catherine finally insisted that the only course of action was to kill Collini. The king, worn down by the council, finally gave the order. We'll kill them all so that no man be left to reproach me. His words were acted upon instantly, and the mayor of Paris was ordered to lock the city gates and make ready the militia in the early hours of the 24th of August, St. Bartholomew's Day. Soldiers were then dispatched to Colina's lodgings, where they forced their way past his guards and dragged the sleepy Colini from his bed. They stabbed him repeatedly over and over again, and then threw his lifeless body out of the window onto the ground below. Rumours of what had just taken place spread like wildfire. Believing that this was a signal of the king's approval, the bells were rung, and the sound taken by the Catholic population to join the militia. What followed was a veritable massacre of anyone to believe to be Huguenot. The militia had secretly issued orders to Catholics to wear a white cross on their arm or their hat, and for every Catholic family to put a lighted torch in their window. The Huguenots did not stand a chance and were caught like rats in a trap. Having started a bloodbath, it was almost impossible to stop the slaughter. For three days and nights, the slaying continued unabated as men, women, and children, little children, innocent of all, were dragged from their homes and butchered. The massacre spread outwards from Paris, reaching the town of Orléans by the night of the 26th of August, with bands of Catholics roaming the streets, assassinating any helpless, unarmed Huguenots in their wake. The marriage that had been a hope for peace was not a success, but Henri of Navarre felt obliged to convert to Catholicism in order to ascend the throne of France. He became Henri IV, and it was he who eventually brought to an end the wars of religion by diplomatic guile in producing the Edict of Nantes. 
This edict was an immense accomplishment as he skillfully and diplomatically wove into the edict with a good few postscripts, something for everyone. He became the savior of the Huguenots without inflaming the Catholics. Through the edict, as its inception marked the beginning of the very deserved and hard-fought-for freedom and recognition for Huguenots. So, how were they still victims, you may well ask, after such a triumph? Well, like all good things, it did not last. The moderate Henri IV was assassinated while his son Louis was still a child, and his Catholic widow ensured that their son, Louis XIII's bias, was towards those of the old Catholic faith. One particular atrocity during his reign was the massacre at Negropoli, a small town a few miles east of Montauban in southwest France. Louis took the decision to make an example of the predominantly Huguenot citizens as he wrongly suspected them of ill-treating the royal garrison a few months earlier. He issued the harsh order, treat the Huguenots as they have treated others, and he meant it. This order was brutally obeyed far beyond any possible mistreatment the garrison may or may not have suffered. The soldiers rounded up all able-bodied men and began putting them to death. Before they could join their Huguenot comrades, in retaliation. The women folk, traumatized at such brutal carnage and fearful for their own and their children's lives, started to run towards the river to swim across to the safety of the opposite bank. But the soldiers were already there waiting for them. Their anguished cries of mercy fell on deaf ears. Within a very short time, the streets ran rivers of blood from the soldiers' pitiless actions. The few Huguenots who escaped the carnage surrendered the next day by marching proudly into the town square, heads held high. They were hanged. Louis XIII's successor, successor, Louis XIV, was given an even more bigoted upbringing. Between the two of them, the hard-won religious freedoms of the Huguenots were to be gradually and relentlessly eroded by fair means and foul. Huguenots had, of course, suffered for their faith both before and during the wars of religion, but the pressure to return to the faith particularly during the reign of Louis XIV, was to be systematically intensified. France's constitution still clearly stated that the land was to be ruled by one king and one faith, the faith of the king. And while this idea was fine, as long as everyone was happy to go along with the same faith, 
Once some of the king's subjects had chosen to reject the old faith, this was perceived as a threat both to the king and his constitution. Louis, a staunch Catholic, was encouraged to deal with this religious issue by his confessor and his mistress. Both of them worked tirelessly on Louis's conscience, saying that his own sins would be forgiven if he dealt with the matter of Protestantism. He instigated many brutal rulings known as ordonances, including one that gave powers to every priest and local magistrate to visit the sick to ask the question, would you like to die in the Roman Catholic faith? This might sound fairly innocuous, but often the question would be accompanied by various methods of torture imposed upon the sick and the dying. The methods used to encourage Huguenots to convert were often brutal in the extreme, such as pouring boiling water down people's throats or tossing elderly and frail people in blankets. Louis gave his consent in a further drive to aid the conversions to begin buying Huguenots back into the Catholic faith. Each Huguenot would be paid to convert, but of course there was a flip side to this. If you then found, were then found to have lapsed as a new Catholic, punishment could and often was very severe, including, of course, sentencing to the galleys. And once you were sentenced to them, life was not good and didn't last very long. Neither was being of a tender age protection against the law to bring Protestants back to the Catholic fold. Once a child reached the age of just 14, he or she would be deemed old enough to renounce their faith and convert to Catholicism. And their helpless parents would then be forced by law to pay maintenance to the Catholic family for their child or children so that they could be brought up in a Catholic family and follow the Catholic faith. After a while, the age at which children could be encouraged to convert was lowered to just five years old. French law was frequently slew towards favouring Catholics, leaving many Huguenots unable to attain a profession, for example in the law or a government post. Furthermore, the law was weighted very heavily in favour of Catholic petitioners in legal cases. In other words, it wasn't what you know or even who you knew, more a case of what your faith was. Even in death, the greatest leveller of all, Huguenots were victimised. They were forced to bury their dead, either at dawn or dusk, with no more than ten mourners allowed to attend. 
Torture had, of course, been applied from time to time, but with the inception of the king's dragoons, a whole new level of physical and mental pressure gave impetus to the drive to convert Huguenots to Catholicism. The troops were deployed in various areas across France. Their arrival and subsequent actions became known as Dragonades. They would swiftly descend upon a town or village and first of all demand, say, two soldiers be billeted with the Huguenot family. Once the soldiers were installed, more soldiers would be sent, then more, then more. No one dare refuse, and the demands made by the troops sorry, I'll make up the troops, drove the families to flee their homes as they were unable to meet the cost of feeding the increasing numbers of troops. When this happened, without hesitation, the troops would loot the house and sell the family's possessions for a fraction of their worth. Often the troops would intimidate family members and this eventually was brought to Louis' attention. The king was a little shocked to learn that all the conversions the dragoons had achieved had not been without duress. Instead, he had to face the uncomfortable fact that many had been forced by such brutal methods as rape, robbery, and physically dragging people to an altar where they would be doused in holy water. But by 1685, Louis XIV had been convinced by his ministers that the majority of his subjects were now good Catholics, and so was encouraged to revoke the Edict of Nantes. The Edict of Fontainebleau, more commonly known as the Revocation, was signed on the 22nd of October, 1685. The edict was a, a short document, but it was to the point. And among its 12 articles, it stated that no Huguenot pastor, that is the equivalent of a vicar, could remain in the country. To do so would risk capture and either a life sentence in the galleys, a brutal punishment, for many, or an even swifter punishment of execution, frequently by fire. Furthermore, the pastors were given just 15 days to depart French soil and were told they could not take their children. Their wives were forced to choose to either leave with their husbands, which would mean they would have the heartbreak of leaving their children behind, including, in many cases, little unweaned infants, or wave goodbye to their husbands. The remaining Huguenots were told to convert. They could not legally leave the country. From now on, those who chose to remain steadfast to Protestantism were forced to attend the churches in the desert secret gatherings in out-of-the-way and difficult-to-reach areas 
sometimes in a secluded valley, an open-air service, another time in a cave, in a cellar, wherever they could find a relatively safe place to meet. For some years, Huguenots, both individuals and families, had secretly fled abroad. They had seen the metaphoric writing on the wall and not waited until the revocation. But the risk of flight post-revocation was a far more dangerous undertaking. Although still they chose to flee for a new life and the chance to live their lives and practice their faith freely, and they repaid the welcome they received in their adopted homelands many, many times over by bringing a richness and diversity that is still in evidence today. Yes, this is a horrific picture. Let me tell you the story about it. Of all the atrocities suffered by the Huguenots, the horrific injustice of Jean Calas stands out as an apocalyptic event that was to become a turning point in the attitude of French society. He, his wife and family of four sons and two daughters lived in Toulouse. All except for one son was staunchly Protestant. The second son, 28-year-old Marc-Antoine, had been prevented from pursuing a legal career, due, of course, to his faith, and felt the perceived injustice keenly. So much so that one evening, after dinner, he committed suicide in the family shop. When his body was discovered a little later that evening, his horrified father decided to claim it had been murder, as he was well aware that the body of Protestant who had committed suicide would be stripped naked, tied to a hurdle, and dragged around the streets while the citizens were invited to pelt the corpse with excrement. Jean knew this would be too much for his wife to bear. A local capital officer of the law called to the scene, arrested several of the family as cries of murder were directed towards the hapless kinsfolk. Eventually, Jean was tried and judged guilty of the murder of Marc-Antoine. It must be remembered that French law at that time did not differentiate between hard fact and hearsay, and that a bias against a Protestant would reduce the chance of justice. Thus, the verdict was a foregone conclusion. His horrific, torturous death followed the next day. The sentence was begun in the torture chamber of the prison where he was invited to own up to the horrendous crime of murdering his own child. He refused and continued to protest his innocence, but his repeated pleas fell on deaf ears. He was afterwards taken to the main square in Toulouse 
where his body was tied, as you could see, to a cartwheel, and his limbs were smashed to pieces with an iron bar. No mercy. Then he was strangled. When at last his body lay lifeless and blooded, they removed his corpse from the wheel and burned it. But this tragic miscarriage of justice was to have far-reaching consequences as the story spread far and wide across France, resulting in Voltaire reviewing the case and bringing it to international awareness. Jean Calas was eventually exonerated on the 17th of March, 1765. The plaque proudly displayed outside the Calas family home in Toulouse gives detail of his pardon. On this side of the channel, by the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763, many of the Spitalfields' Huguenot silk weavers were finding life very harsh, as a resumption of trade between the two countries meant once again French silk was being imported into this country. This was leading to a slump in demand for their own homegrown product, as well as a drop in the rates. In past times, their ancestors had fled to escape victimization, but now their descendants were to be victims of economics, economics, and it was made all the more difficult to accept, as their skills had, in the past, brought great wealth to the land of their adoption. First, they decided to petition Parliament, but then they heard that the petition had just fallen on deaf ears. So they marched to the House of Commons, this desperate band of men, in time for the opening of Parliament to demand a total ban on foreign silks. Masters were, however, unwilling to pay the rates required by the silk weavers, and which had been paid in earlier days when their silk products had been in very high demand. In 1765, as a result of sporadic rioting and unlawful attacks on personal property, an act was passed declaring it illegal to gain entry with malicious intent to despoil or destroy any silk goods in the manufacturing process in either a shop or a house. Weavers in despair gathered together to form clubs, the forerunners to trade unions, which were at that time illegal. But desperate times call for desperate measures. To raise funds to fight their cause, it was agreed at these meetings that they would invite a voluntary payment of tax from masters or loom owners but not everyone was in agreement to what was in effect an illegal levy. Stand forward Louis Chauvet, who refused to pay the tax, and he went further by banning his workers from joining the clubs 
or making their own donations to the fighting fund. Chauvet proven, prudently set guards to watch over his property, but within a short time, silk handkerchiefs were found to have been cut from his looms. Chauvet was not a man to be held to ransom by a few poor weavers. He decided that what he needed was a compliant weaver to bear witness as to who had been responsible. Step forward, Daniel Clark, who agreed to give false witness in exchange for a handsome fee. He accused John Valine of Huguenot descent and John Doyle of Irish descent of taking part in this criminal act. In spite of both men refuting the charge, they were tried and sentenced to be hung. And almost at the last moment, the king directed that the sentence should be carried out not at the usual place of execution, which was then Tyburn, but in the area populated by large numbers of weavers, that is to say, Bethnal Green, often classed then as part of Spitalfields, as a salutary lesson to all that the law would be upheld. On the 6th of December, two carts set out from Newgate Prison. The first carried the prisoners, Valine and Doyle, while the second conveyed the portable gallows. At the crossroads outside the Summon and Ball public house, an angry mob hurled abuse and missiles at the poor, unfortunate workmen whose task it was to set up the gallows. The two condemned men continued to vehemently protest their innocence as they were forced to mount the steps to the gallows and even as the nooses were secured around their necks, they still cried out against the verdict. For 50 minutes after the last breath had left the two men's bodies, the authorities refused to allow the corpses to be cut down and given to their family and friends. By 1851, Charles Dickens, with his friend and sub-editor William Willis, on a visit to Spitalfields, noted the sad decline of the area and its inhabitants. He saw for himself the sad, pallid-faced, out-of-work silk weavers, dolefully sitting on the doorsteps of once well-kept, now decaying houses. The relentless march of mechanization had finally overtaken handlooms of the silk weavers. One machine could now do the work of many pairs of hands, and so the Huguenot silk weavers were once again victims, this time of industrialization. I have always felt that what life tests you with often strengthens your character, and I am a firm believer that genetically, adversity-bred strength can be passed down the generations. To demonstrate this, here are two examples of Huguenot descendants who in later decades became saviors to other victims. On the 14th of July, 1789, the upheaval of the French Revolution 
began with the storming of the Bastille. During the aftermath of this bloody period, many French men, women and children fled France, including a sizable number of priests, all heading to the nearest friendly foreign shores. The sounds of French-speaking people in this area once again increased to a point where there was more French than English spoken. A large number of these often Catholic refugees were forced to flee with virtually no money or possessions, but were welcomed in this country by descendants of their fellow Huguenot countrymen. One such saviour was a widow who had for many years lived in Hampstead, of all places, and whose obituary in the Times newspaper had years later praised her generosity, both emotionally and financially, towards these poor, unfortunate refugees. And I quote, The numerous French emigrants who during the revolution took up their residence in her neighbourhood were particularly the objects of her kindness and commiseration for those amongst them who had lost their all and were suffering under the united miseries of poverty and disease. Her humanity was actively employed in providing such necessaries and comforts as they were unable to procure for themselves. The second example took place during the dark days of World War II. In France, until the Act of Toleration of 1787, remaining Huguenots had been forced to outwardly accept Catholicism, although many had secretly continued to practice their faith. We all know from our own family histories the stories of precious family memories passed down from generation to generation. And of course, many French families also passed down their own heroic Huguenot histories. And so it was the younger generation in the early days of World War II who fired with pride in their ancestors' steadfastness, now took up the banner of righteousness to become saviors of many innocent Jewish victims. As most of you will be aware, while part of northern France was occupied by the Nazis, most of the southern region was controlled by the puppet government of Marshal Pétain, who had agreed an armistice in 1940 with Germany. This government became known as the Vichy government because its headquarters were in the town of Vichy thus near to the areas where the Huguenot churches in the desert had been so active, that is, the western foothills of the Savannah. Two villages in particular whose deeds have been recorded in my book are Le Chambon sur Lignon and Dauphie, although it must be said they were not the only villagers or townsfolk to risk their lives to help the victimised in remembrance of their own ancestors' sufferings. In Le Chambon, the villagers were inspired by their pastor, André Trocmé, 
who had preached to his congregation the day after the Franco-German armistice had been signed, resist Nazi rule using the weapons of the spirit. He took his inspiration from Marie Durand, a young Huguenot woman who centuries before, refusing to abandon her religion, had been incarcerated for 38 years in the Tour de Constance in southern France. On the wall of her cell, she had scrawled one word, Résister, and this became the buzzword for Trocmé, himself a Huguenot descendant, to encourage his own band of resistors. He and another pastor, Edouard Thay, also refused to sign the required oath of loyalty to the Vichy government, nor would they hand over a list of Jewish people, saying that they did not know what a Jew was, they, they only knew men. Trocme recruited others. Gradually, they set up a network of individuals willing to offer shelter and support to Jewish children, who had earlier, with the collusion of the Vichy government, been interred in holding camps such as Gur in southwest France. A delicate process of negotiation began to enable them to take the children in groups to places of safety. They were financially supported by CIMAD, an international move, committee movement for evacuees. Another village, villager dedicated to saving as many children as possible was the village doctor, Le Forestier, who became one of the many resistors eventually captured and shot. Local guides, descendants of Huguenots, led the Jewish children on the difficult and often dangerous journeys to the relative safety of neutral countries such as Switzerland. Via almost extinct and dimly remembered trails once used by their own ancestors. Many outlying farmsteads became temporary shelters for the children, waiting their turn to escape across the border out of France. The farmers would be alerted to new arrivals by coded messages, such as a new delivery of books will be arriving shortly. One new recruit did not understand this at all, and he asked, books? What books? The terse reply was, Old Testament books, you idiot. In other words, a fresh intake of Jewish children. Large numbers of children were also hidden literally under the noses of German soldiers who were convalescing in the village. The local hotel had been commandeered for their convalescence. It overlooked the school playground where children, both Christian and Jew, were enrolled. But amazingly, the recuperating soldiers never suspected anything was amiss. When the children arrived in the area, their names would be carefully recorded alongside the temporary names that had been assigned to them, so that hopefully one day the child would be able to return to its own identity and, if possible, find its real family. Sadly, often their parents had already been deported to camps such as Auschwitz and would never return. By 1942, 
the German army had swept across the free south of France, which escalated the efforts of the volunteers trying desperately to get as many Jewish children to safety by means of false papers, some of which were produced by a 16-year-old Jewish teenager, Oskar Rosowski, who was able to replicate the various documents required to a very high standard. He worked alongside Jacqueline Decaudemanche, the school secretary, but in the other village I have included, Dolphy, the forger was none other than the local mayor's secretary, 21-year-old Jean Barnier. Although Dolphy was in fact a town rather than a village, and its inhabitants were in a Protestant minority, nonetheless the Catholics, if not actively supporting, were at least turning a blind eye to the brave endeavours of their Protestant neighbours. And without their silent support, it must be said, fewer children would have been saved from the gas chambers. After the war, it was estimated that families in Vichy, France, had helped approximately 3,800 children escape. Post-war, some of the villages were awarded the Yad Vashem Medal for their people's bravery. I hope you have found this talk of interest to you and thank you for your time. If you would like to ask questions, please do so now. And as has already been said, if you want to buy a copy of the book, Discounted Rate, it's more a factual novel. That's what one reviewer has now described it as. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joyce. You're very welcome. Um, they went through a hell of a lot, didn't you? When you say persecution, you oh, just yeah, tend yeah, to think, yeah. oh, yeah, people being nasty, but a shouting in the street. That was no, 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 far, far worse than that. And there was a lot more I could have said, but you know, I just think it gets people depressed after an hour, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> it was rather like yeah. going through the the, um, the the list of the martyrs. You know, that, that book that was published. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. What impressed me is, as well is that um, my husband took me to France on several trips because I felt I wanted to go grassroots, although it was a good excuse, I know, but to find out more. And if I hadn't have gone to France, um, I wouldn't have gone into the Protestant church in Toulouse and seen this amazing plaque that they've got for Jean Callas and spoken to locals about it. And even the taxi driver, they talk about the French being, you know, a little bit unhelpful. But I, I spoke to this taxi driver and I said, look, I'm, I can't find the Kala family home and I, I want to go and see this. Oh, it's not a problem. And, and with that, he got the directions for me and showed me how to get there and waved me goodbye and hoped I had a good flight home. And the directions were perfect, so I saw that as well. But I also met people in tourist information offices who talked to me about what the French had done in the Second World War. And I've only touched very lightly on the suffering that they went through um, in order to help, because they felt that's what their ancestors had done, and therefore, you know, in honor of their memory, they should do the same, because they'd got freedom. 
uh, and I thought it was, it was very important to bring that in. You know, this, I do believe very passionately that what happens in our lives does get passed on to the next generation, not only through memories, but it toughens your, your inner core and you pass that on to the next generation. And I think the Huguenots have, have done, done this country and others very proud. Anything? Are there any questions for George Stacey, Jeff? Yes. Um, when I was about seven years old, so a few years ago, no, no laughing, um, I, said to, I was talking to my dad about um, family, and, and he happened to say, oh, Huguenots. I said, well, what's a Huguenot? And, and he said, you know, French Protestants. And I said, well, what did we do? And he said, oh, we were sick weavers. And it lodged in the back of my mind. My dad was a very, um, a very encouraging man. No question that I asked, how, no matter how silly, did he ever refuse to answer. But it lodged in the back of my mind, and I always, always loved history. Um, and I felt that I wanted to find out more. So at one point, I, I found a little bit more out about the family, and then I got inspired to find out more when I was researching my previous book. And I found a whole load of information about the Huguenots in Spitalfields. Um, and that's what inspired me to. And the more I read, the more impressed I was by what they'd gone through and what they gave us. I mean, in that book, you'll find lots of stories of um, not only silk weavers, they were clockmakers, watchmakers. Anyone been to Hampton Court? Mm -hmm. The, the fabulous gates, Tijoux, Huguenot, £10 banknote. I know it's been changed, we've got this plastic rubbish now, but Hublon was, used to be on the £50 banknote, and he was the first governor of the Bank of England. He helped set up the Bank of England. The paper that we used to have our banknotes made of, that, that was manufactured by a Huguenot. Medicine. Um, anyone here had a baby forceps? No? No of it? Yeah? Huguenot invention. And, and I can go on. They, they got involved in architecture and science, and what they didn't get involved in would be easier to write down. And the immense change they brought to this country and to other countries that they went to. It, it's just overwhelming. Um, but I've included a lot of stories in the book about goldsmiths and silversmiths and families that went to Canada and to America, which people probably expect, but did you know Brazil? I've even discovered a lady whose Huguenot ancestor um, went to Mexico. Russia? Anyone seen a Fabergé strip? Peter Carl Fabergé? Huguenot? Um, they went to Germany, they went to Denmark, they went all over the place. They didn't just come to England, but the richness of their stories is, is incredible. Thank you. Any more? They're all frightened in case I give a long, long speech, aren't they? <laughs> thank, thank you, George. Rather like um, Louise Roy had been earlier today, it, it, it seems to be showing the face of dignity in the face of adversity people who are victimised rather than victims uh, the, 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 the strength shines through so fascinating talk ladies and gentlemen thank you very much indeed to George Hampton
And that was Joyce Hampton at the Whitechapel Society 1888's Victims Conference. We would like to thank Joyce Hampton, Steve Ratty, Frog Moody, Ruby Vitorino, and the Committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journey. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.